guest is Miles Schertz. He's a counselor, meditation teacher, couples counselor, mediator, and author of Beyond Perception, Conscious Communication, and Conscious Communication for Couples. So in our last two recent conversations, we talked about racism and bias, and then we talked about the victim-oppressor paradigm, also talking about it in light of the political polarity and the way both sides of the political spectrum are feeling about each other and how easy it is to get caught up in that victim-oppressor paradigm. And yeah. and today we're going to talk about one of your new or recent booklets titled The Tyranny of the Ego. And I would love for you to talk about what you mean by tyranny of the ego. And also, as you're talking about that and describing that, give us a sense of what the ego is in this context. Because we all have egos, and our ego is <laughs> is very central in all of our lives. And yet, Many of us are completely unaware that it even exists or that it's something other than who we identify as ourselves. Yes. So I think that's a great place to start. The, the title of the book, uh, it's a little booklet, easy to read, hopefully, <laughs> is The Tyranny of the Ego. So, yeah, let's define tyranny and ego. Um, tyranny is hopefully a little bit easier to define. I start the book or kind of build on the premise that most of us feel uncomfortable and imagine that we're being controlled, we're being tyrannized by something. So it's a, it's a very universal human experience that somebody or some organization or something <laughs> is wielding power over us, is controlling us for their own benefit. So. That's the idea of tyranny, and, you know, it's authoritarian leadership that does not have our best interests in mind, but rather is controlling us for their own benefit. And human history is just packed with stories and examples of fighting against that tyranny, and we've made it into this kind of noble cause. And the book begins with the idea that we all feel that we're being tyrannized, but that we're not sure who's doing it sometimes. Sometimes the tyrant is visible and apparent and we know who it is and we know who to push back against and sometimes we don't. So the exploration in this book is that the discovery I'm hoping that readers will make is that the tyrant that's controlling your life is not what you thought. It's not somebody or something outside in the world but rather a hidden invisible programming that's embedded in your own thinking mind, which is a big concept to unpack, and it's a stretch. But that's what the book is aimed at, and the name I'm giving to that hidden invisible programming is ego. And so that's the word we should spend a little more time on, because it's, it's a word all of us know, I think, and it's used so frequently that it's easy to associate it with certain concepts that may not necessarily be helpful. So I just simply want to define ego as the idea or the belief, the sense that I am a separate individual, separate from you and separate from everything around me. 
and I have my own source. You know, I, I am self-sufficient. I don't need anything else, essentially, and I'm on my own. I have to, I have to fend for myself. It's the idea that the basic premise that most of us just assume is reality, that we're each individuals having to fend for ourselves in the world. That's the concept of ego that I'm pointing to. And I think it's really important, as I've taught this and found language for it over the years, I've noticed that most people associate ego with either a negative evaluation, ego is bad, ego is evil in some way, or ego is the problem, or ego is good. We have to have an ego. We can't live without it, so we try to make it a good ego. And I want to just directly address that. I'm not suggesting that ego is bad. Um, as I get into in the book, that concept of right and wrong, good and evil, good and bad, is part of the ego's programming. It's part of the ego's language of duality. Everything has a contrast with an opposite. And if we label the ego as bad, what happens is we're reactivating its programming. We're playing into its ruse. We're, we're buying into the ego's illusion of two things, good and evil, right and wrong. So it's not useful in any way, I think, to label the ego as wrong. What's helpful, and the way I like to present it is, it's simply not real. It's, a, it's an idea. It's not, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a concept. And it's very hard to unpack that because the one thing most of us are certain about is that we, we exist as this separate person, a separate personality. In my case, this person I call Miles. Most of us are really convinced that that's real and that's who we are. It's the most fundamental aspect of our reality is that we exist as a separate personality. And what I'm doing in this book is, is really challenging that assumption, which is a stretch because it's such a basic assumption. But when I talk about ego, I'm really just talking about this common assumption and experience that most of us have that we assume is real, that we are a separate individual personality and we're in some way separated from everybody else. So that's what I'm calling ego. So you say in this booklet and in your work, you try to dismantle that for people. How do you do that considering that most of us, just about all of us, are completely identified with our egos without, mostly without any sense of there being any separation between us and our ego. Exactly, and so it's a great question. How do you even start the conversation? How do you start getting people to look at the ego as something separate from themselves? And as I really try to lay out in the beginning of this little booklet, that's really the only task. That's the only thing that's required, which is the good news. It's really just exposing this idea of ego for what it is as an idea rather than as a reality, and so experiencing yourself as something apart from the ego, something, once you experience yourself, let's say, without an ego for a moment, the reality starts to dawn on you that you're not this separate self, you're not this private mind, you know, that's absorbed in chronic thinking, that's not who you are. Once you can step outside that and observe it from a point of neutral witnessing, you realize that 
that's not who you are. And as soon as you have that experience, reality starts to shift. Your perception and programming starts to fade because you have seen it for what it is. You've seen that it's an it's a idea concept. It's not who you actually are. That, that's all we have to do, and it's a big task <laughs> because most of us never even consider questioning our ego. We don't see it. It's invisible. As you, as you said at the beginning here, most of us don't ever think about our ego or realize that we have one. What we usually do is we see other people's egos, right? Mm -hmm. We can see, oh, that person has a big ego. And when we use concepts like that, we're using it as a negative. You know, you have a big ego or you got to control your ego. And there's some truth in that. And we do see other people's egos much more easily than we see our own. But the fact is that it remains invisible to most of us because it is the lens or the programming that we're looking at the world through. Everything we do and experience, we filter. It gets automatically filtered. We don't even realize we're doing it. Automatically filtered through the lens of ego. And because ego is the lens we're using, we never see it. We just assume that what we're seeing is real. You know, just a simple example of that is that everything, if you watch your mind, and this is where the practice of meditation or some self-awareness practice is really essential to be able to slow your thinking down enough to see it to observe it and notice the, the train of thought notice the sequence of your thoughts and you'll see that every thought has a reference to yourself to you it's everything you see and experience all the information your senses bring in gets filtered through this ego lens to be about you so your your mind is continuously weaving the story of you as a separate personality, you, Tonio, or me, Miles. And that warps our perception and distorts our direct experience. And so we're not seeing something as it is. We're seeing something as our mind relates it to the story of us. And that's the limitation. That's what keeps us kind of caught in this very limited circular patterning of everything is about me and referring everything back to me, and it prevents me from seeing that there's an ego thought system programming that's behind it all. So we take everything very, very personally as being related to us as a separate entity, a separate individual, and the ego is is really in charge of our survival and at the core of that is really its own sense of survival when I suspect deep down it knows that it doesn't really exist that it's really operating on the most tenuous of ground and so just as we tend to project everything outwardly so does the ego and that's really where there's that overlay. Exactly. The ego has us convinced that it is us. And the way I present it in the book, these are pretty almost science fiction-like concepts because the only way to really talk about it is that the ego, it's like a parasite, or I, I liken it to a virus that's invaded our mind and taken over our mind for the sole purpose of reproducing itself. In that way, it's very similar to a virus. A virus 
like the current coronavirus, gets into our body and then it attaches to the cells in our body and breaks the cell wall and, and replaces that cell's DNA with its own DNA and uses our actual cells in our body to reproduce the virus. That's, that's how it works and its survival depends on reproducing itself using our cells. So in a very similar way, your ego depends on reproducing itself using your mind. And the thing is that this is impossible to believe, and I'm not asking anybody to believe it. If you, if you simply believe it, it's not going to change anything. We could make a, re- a new religion out of this and call it the, you know, the religion of non-ego or something. But then we're just back into the world of belief. And what really changes things, what will actually free you, is to see it for yourself. This is one of the core teachings of the Buddha that made me so interested in learning about his other teachings was one of the fundamental things the Buddha taught was he said, don't believe me, don't believe anything I'm telling you, and don't believe anything anybody tells you. Use it as suggestions and then look for yourself. And then he taught us this simple practice of meditation that would allow you to clear your mind of thought for a moment in order to use your mind as a, as a tool of pure awareness. And as you do that, you can see clearly. It's like the fog clears. You're not lost in the, in the fog of perpetual thought, but you're starting to see directly. And that's what he called insight. Insight meditation is the form that I practice and teach. And as you see clearly, you begin to see that the ego is just a string of thoughts, all relating to the story of you. There's a history, there's memory, there's a future, there's planning and projecting into the future and there's all the as you said every experience we have we take it personally <laughs> and we take it personally because that's how the ego has us conditioned we make it about us if somebody does something to hurt our feelings which happens all the time we take it personally we think they were trying to hurt our feelings and we usually react to defend ourselves which is where the problems really start is we end up we end up in conflict a lot because our ego takes everything personally and the idea of being tyrannized by it is that it's it's really controlling us solely for its own proliferation the ego is controlling our mind solely for the purpose of perpetuating the illusion that we are the ego and if you start to watch your thoughts you'll see that every single thought relates to the story of you. And if you let go of a thought, which is not an easy thing to do, because when you let go of a thought, you're actually letting go of you for a moment. But when you let go of a thought, you'll find underneath it the silence that comes just after that thought disappears. There's peace, and there's certainty, and there's a sense of connection that doesn't exist when we're lost in thought. And that's the point of spiritual work, and that's the point of this book, is to get to where we can undo the tyranny of the ego, where we can step away from its tyranny and free ourselves. And you talk about meditation, and there's a lot of different notions of what meditation is, particularly in the West. To a large degree, it's being co-opted for stress reduction, for efficiency, <laughs> you know, to make us more efficient in our in our lives, in our work, in our relationships, to help us in our to fulfill our, our goals and ambitions. But you you talk about meditation as something that sharpens our direct awareness, giving us the ability 
to clearly distinguish thought from direct experience. Exactly. Now, since most people are living in the realm of their own thoughts, you know, their self-generated, self-centered thoughts continually, um, what is direct experience and how does it differ from our thoughts and the stories that we tell ourselves about our experience and about reality? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to back up what you were saying about meditation first, the word is being used much more commonly now, which is, I think, a a really good thing. When I started meditation in the 1970s, very few people knew what it was or had any idea about it. And now it's a much more commonly used. But I think, as you said, it's often um, water, what I would call watered down or diluted into a way to cope with stress. And it is a way to cope with stress. It can help immensely to calm and center a person. However, it's, it's a much more powerful tool than that. That's just the beginning. And the way the Buddha presented it, which comes through, I think, very clearly in these ancient teachings of the Buddha, is that it's a tool for seeing clearly. The word that was often used for meditation in his teaching is vipassana, which is sometimes translated in English as insight meditation. And it means the word vipassana, a Pali word from the Buddhist language, translates in English as to see things as they are. So the premise of his teaching is that you're seeing reality distorted, and that's not going to satisfy you. That's going to lead to continuous suffering because we want to see things real. We want to get down to the bottom of it. Every human being, all of us, has this urge to know what's actually happening. And he simply said to do that, you have to cultivate this direct awareness, this direct seeing that doesn't filter your experience through your thinking mind. So for most of us, that may sound very confusing. But if you start to look at how your mind works, you'll see that as soon as you have a direct sensory experience, your mind has a thought about it almost instantly, so that we translate all of our direct sensory experience into thought so quickly that we only see the thought, we rarely see the direct sensory experience. So we draw, our mind draws conclusions and makes stories about things. And one of the simplest and most effective things that I teach when I teach meditation is to help someone distinguish between a thought and a direct experience. And for most of us, that's that's a totally new idea. So just to unpack that briefly here, a thought is words, concepts, or images generated by your mind. It's a piece of a story. It's a line from a story. That's what a thought is. And if you watch your mind for a moment, you'll see that it's always generating thoughts. It never stops. It's generating thoughts that are building this story. And Direct experience has no thought or words or concepts associated with it. It's direct experience. So, for example, if I'm standing in the sun and I feel the sun on my skin, there's a warmth, there's a kind of a feeling of heat and warmth and light on my skin, that's a direct experience. My mind will instantly think, oh, I like this, this is great, I love the sun, or oh, it's too hot, I don't like this, I have to get in the shade. Those are the thoughts that come immediately after the direct experience, but the direct experience is just that feeling that you get on your skin when the sun hits your skin. 
So our lives are filled with direct experience. However, the ego, as you talked about earlier, is continually regenerating itself. It's continually perpetuating itself like a virus. And the way it does it is through these stories that it tells in, in its own way of integrating each new experience. That's right. And it does it in a way that fits into its own pre-existing or its developing sense of self, in yes. separate individual self. So that it yes, fits so the with... ego has a narrative that it's always pushing, and the narrative, part of spiritual practice, any any deep spiritual teaching, all it can do really is is highlight these narratives that your mind keeps repeating. So, for example, a narrative that you and I have talked about in recent weeks on this radio show is the narrative of being a victim. That's part of the ego's narrative: is that I'm the victim of somebody else who has more power and authority and control over me. And that narrative, every experience that I have will then in some way fit into that narrative. So I'm basically proving it by translating, my ego is proving it by translating my experiences into that narrative. And the problem with that is it's distorted. And it distorts our experience of reality, and it creates a lot of suffering unnecessarily. It creates a sense of I'm not free. I'm being I'm being controlled. When in fact I am free. It's just my ego that's creating a picture, and I'm believing in that picture. So, as you said a moment ago, we have direct experience all the time, but we rarely take it in as direct experience. How we experience it is as a thought or concept or conclusion in our mind. And as soon as that happens, which is, for most of us, instantaneous, we don't even notice it happening, our mind translates our experience. As soon as that happens, we're not able to see things as they are. We're seeing things through the way our mind presents them. And we tend to react to those distortions that we think we're perceiving. Exactly. And those reactions are often violent in a way. It's like, particularly if we feel like we're a victim, I think one very natural response is to think, well, I don't like being a victim, therefore I have to, you know, turn the tables on the situation. And I think a very logical or, or almost natural reaction response would be to try to become the opposite of the victim. In this model, it would be becoming the oppressor, becoming more powerful. That's right, and that is one of the problems with the ego's conditioning, the ego's programming, is that it sets us up for chronic conflict and tension. We're always, think of it this way, each one of us individually always has some enemy that we're fighting. There's always an enemy, and that's not just coincidence. It's the way the mind, the ego mind sets it up because what happens, and I, I try to illustrate this in the book, and again, these illustrations are just for you, for each one of us individually, to look for ourselves and see, can you see this happening in your own mind? If you can, it's a game changer. And if you can't, then just let it go. <laughs> it doesn't help to believe in it. It's just an idea to explore on your own, in your own awareness of your own thoughts. 
And the idea of, you know, what happens when we identify as a victim is that then we have an enemy, and all of our resources go into fighting that enemy. We focus on that. And as soon as we do that, we're engaging our ego. The ego is the only resource that we depend on exclusively, our thinking mind. We depend on it so exclusively. So it's got us caught in this sort of a perfect storm of the perfect, what I call the mother of all conspiracy theories, is that our ego has us convinced that we can't survive without it. And then it manufactures these threats in the form of I'm a victim and somebody out there is trying to oppress me. And as soon as there's a threat, I instantly activate my ego to defend myself. And as soon as I've done that, I'm, I'm wedded to that illusion. I'm wedded to the ego's paradigm, and I can't see it because I'm so engaged in it. So it, it distorts our experience of reality, often with very tragic and, as you said, violent consequences. And you can see it all through the world today, how, how we end up fighting against each other. We, we end up... <laughs>